Doom. Hey there, and welcome to Marvel by the Month, the podcast that takes you through the history of Marvel Comics one month at a time. Today we're talking about the comics that hit the newsstands in December of 1966. My name is Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. Uh, Rob, uh, I got some bad news. <laughs> On top of whatever life is right now. Okay, throw it throw it my way. Um, I just learned that there's other comic book podcasts out there. Oh, oh no. So yeah. that, that could be why our numbers aren't as high as we think they should be. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I was wondering why we didn't have hundreds of thousands of subscribers. I thought we were really producing a, a pretty... <laughs> you know, scarce commodity, but, uh, no, it actually turns out there's, there's a lot of podcasts. Um, I should have researched this 70 <laughs> episodes ago, maybe. Um, so yeah, but, uh, there is a silver lining. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it turns out that, uh, some of them are actually pretty good. I have heard a couple to, to, you know, not, uh, spoil things too much. I'm, I'm interested in this topic. Okay, excellent. Well, now that I've got you, let me reel you in. We uh, are lucky enough to uh, be joined by the hosts of one of those podcasts, The Comics Canon, the podcast that renders judgment on the greatest comic book stories of yesterday and today. Kurt Holman and Kevin Moreau, thanks for joining us on Marvel by the Month. Thank you, guys. This is Kurt. Hey, and this is Kevin. Thank you very much for having us. And yes, um, we're the reason that you're not as successful as you <laughs> as you should be. Uh, <laughs> the Comics Canon Financial Empire is is just a juggernaut. Yeah. Uh, it's a McElroyan, I think. In its, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and no no one can stop the juggernaut, as we know. <laughs> well, I guess well, ultimately, Professor X always stops the juggernaut because at this point in Marvel <laughs> Comics, Professor X ultimately stops everyone they face. So, yep, just got to get that helmet off, and then bam. So, guys, uh, the comics canon has been around uh, for for quite a while. Uh, I was wondering if you could um, kind of give our listeners who may not be familiar with it uh, a little kind of background and uh, on the show and the premise. Sure, I, I can start. Um, it was actually uh, Kevin's idea. We were friends who were um, comics fans and podcast fans, and it's like, hey, why don't we, you know, do a podcast together, basically? And we were both kind of wanted to do something that was a positive, essentially, and not to make fun of. Bad ones. So we decided to do, you know, focus on like what we consider good, potentially great ones, ones that hopefully are great that we'll revisit and find out basically. So that's why we called it the um, podcast that reads, reviews, and renders judgment on the great comic book stories of yesterday and today. We started in, uh, I guess, January of 2016, I think. That's incredible. Uh, well, mm-hmm. congratulations on being a going con- concern for almost five years now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty great. Yeah, earlier this year, when or whenever it was, when we hit our 100th episode, it, it occurred to me, like, people always ask when you hit some sort of anniversary, did they say, did you ever picture yourself lasting 100 episodes? <laughs> um, and the funny answer is, I didn't. You know, I didn't know that we would last to a second episode, but um, <laughs> uh, we really enjoy it. It's a it's a really good um, outlet for both of us, I think, and a focus for our geek energies that um, you know our our significant others are are lovely enough to tolerate. But then I look at something like the uh, the Flop House, <laughs> for example. You know, that's well over three hundred, and I'm like, Ew. yeah, mm. yeah, which which uh, is indirectly how 
we are doing this show since we are both members of the uh, the Podhouse Flopcasters group. <laughs> yeah, both episodes that drop, both shows that drop episodes on Wednesdays, which we chose as <laughs> New Comic Book Day, you know, and so we'll see each other up here. Which one will drop first on the Wednesday episode? Will yes, it be the exactly. Or will it be on Marvel by the Month? Yeah. <laughs> and and you all are uh you're based in uh are you in atlanta or near atlanta um, i mean technically we're both outside the city limits but we're mm-hmm. basically atlantans you know and we live in georgia which is the uh, voter suppression capital of the united states these days <laughs> which yeah. is you know I, I think we we were one of the very first states to do all mail voting so um we'll try to send a little mojo your way um and see if we can you know meet in the middle somewhere and to be clear that's mail with an i um you know all mail voting was pretty popular for most of yeah the history you heard of it here the first oregon rolling back uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh no. yeah no this is not the the road we want to go down um so uh i'm curious so i i've listened to several episodes of the comics canon uh, especially since we you know kind of met through the the Flophouse group uh what what are some of the marvel stories that you've reviewed that, and and what has kind of made the canon and and what didn't come quite close enough to to wind up in there I'll say um, Kevin and I, I think, are both big Marvel fans, you know, going way back. Um, we might be slightly older than the two of you. And I remember um, reading Marvel's like comics in like the 70s and then falling out and then, you know, you know, going to college and then in college getting drawn back in by a guy in my dorm saying, it's like, hey, all this cool stuff is happening. It's like the Marvel stuff. It's like the Hobgoblins around and, you know, <laughs> Daredevil, that's, you know, and Electra and all this stuff. It's like, that sounds kind of interesting. And then got hooked into from that is the renewed gateway getting into things like, you know, um, Frank Miller's Daredevil, which we've done several episodes on, on Born Again and um, the death of Elektra. And then um, going out from there to like non-Marvel stuff like Watchmen and the Vertigo books and things like that. But uh, we're big Fantastic Four fans, so we're particularly excited to be on this one. Um, the um, first issue of Fantastic Four was an easy canon choice. Um, the one where they go, to, I don't know if you've got, gotten this far, but they go to the negative zone and meet Annihilus the first time and Sue, Sue has her baby. It's a great wild crazy Kirby art at its greatest a little later um Jonathan Hickman's run on Fantastic Four is some of my favorite superhero comics ever and then after um more recently he kind of he stopped his run on Fantastic Four did Avengers then did like the Secret Wars like relaunch (laughs) which turned out to be kind of a surprise ending of its Fantastic Four run with this great Reed Richards, Dr. Doom battle, which placed that kind of at the center of literally the center of the Marvel universe. And so all those are things that we're really crazy about just in those, just the Fantastic Four alone. Yeah. Our our very first proper episode was um, on the Galactus trilogy, which is still fairly new in you guys' timeline. Um, Yeah. We did a four part (laughs) Fantastic Four episode. series a couple of years ago uh, where we covered a lot of the stuff Kurt was just talking about. Other Marvel things we've done like Days of Future Past, uh, the the Dark Phoenix saga, the death of Captain America. Way at the end of our episodes, whether a book warrants inclusion in the comics canon, we go through a certain criteria, which include artistic excellence, lasting influence, and we include an X factor to, to make the book irresistible. And a prime example of that one is... Um, 
an early Luke Cage story where um, basically Dr. Doom cheated him out of $200. So Luke Cage goes to Latveria to get his money back. And, yep. and it has a famous panel. It's kind of a meme of its own with Luke Cage confronting Dr. Doom and saying, where's my money, honey, which is a line that's <laughs> quoted on the Luke Cage show. And even though it may not be the best artistically of like Marvel stories, it's just kind of fun moment and it you know kind of expresses the character in this unique way so that's like um we like that the show or podcast can include episodes like that and stories mm-hmm. like that i and i've listened to a few and i i, I never disagree with with your choices oh, thank you. yeah. on what makes the canon but uh it's it's you know we we're stuck in our own um timeline we've traveled back in time and now we're just tra- moving forward one <laughs> yeah, week at a time. You're in it for the long haul. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about it. It's like, so is this an eternal podcast? Will, will you catch up to the present? But then more and more comics will keep coming out. You know? I will say that every now and then, uh, part of the original concept for, for the comics canon, too, was that um, with comics so prevalent in culture these days and TV shows and movies, you know, every time a new MCU movie comes out or a new um, DC show, it presents us an opportunity where we can go back and say, look at the source material it's based on. And so you say like, is this worth your time? You know, like, do you want to read old man Logan (laughs) to get a sense of what theoretically inspired the movie Logan? And um, sometimes we cover these books that, you know, um, from that angle, that might not be things that we might not, it might not be things that we personally would recommend otherwise, but there's still plenty to talk about in situations like that, even if we don't necessarily think they're going to be canonical. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, well, uh, uh, kind of transitioning to what we're going to be talking about uh, this week on the show. So um, our main event of this episode uh, is going to be the four-part Cosmic Doom storyline uh, that concluded this month in Fantastic Four number 60. Um, we are also going to be taking a look at two other single-issue uh, stories that are complete stories in a single issue. So the first is going to be uh, the first appearance of the Shocker in Amazing Spider-Man number 46. Um, and the other is going to be the first appearance... Uh, uh, this is a collector's item of leapfrog and <laughs> quote Mike Murdoch <laughs> end quote uh, in Daredevil and number twenty five. Yeah, that's not all that happened this month. We also have the Avengers and Black Widow fought an interstellar menace named Ixar and his army of androids in Avengers number thirty seven. Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos fought their way through the Fortress of Fear in Sergeant Fury number thirty nine. Nick Fury, uh, future Nick Fury, defeated Hydra's dreadnought robot, and Doctor Strange continued his battle against the sorceress Umar in Strange Tales number 154. um, That also had Marie Severin doing the art on it, which was pretty cool. First Um, woman to to be credited as a creator in a Marvel comic. And yeah, great art in that that Doctor Strange story. Um, Mm -hmm. Iron Man journeyed to the center of the Earth to face the Mole Man, and Captain America fought an impersonator named the Peerless Planner and Tales of Suspense number 87. I hate those names. He's no master planner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then, okay, a couple more. Namor fought Atuma and a giant alien robot. Uh, the Hulk faced the interstellar Stranger in Tales to Astonish number 89 with Gil Kane doing the art on that. Mm-hmm. Hulk story. Um, Thor battled the rock troll champion Ulick 
in Thor number 137. And finally, the X-Men and the Mimic faced the super adaptoid in X-Men number 29. So that's the that's all that we read for this magical episode. And that is just the comics. Let's run you through uh, a few of the news stories that were making headlines in December of 1966. On the 4th of December, uh, working in the Ogoya province in eastern Nigeria, Dr. William Fagey first implemented the surveillance and containment strategy that would eventually eliminate smallpox throughout the world. See? You can get rid of a highly contagious virus if you need to. Um, Dr. Fagey acted with the knowledge that smallpox was contagious for only two weeks, that it was slow moving in its progress, and that most importantly, infected people rarely transmitted the disease to more than a few others, uh, mostly within the immediate household. So Dr. Fagey arranged for a communications network in villages and marketplaces looking for signs of a smallpox infection. Um, and then he would immunize everyone who was likely to have uh, had any uh, contact thanks to uh, contact tracing. And his method uh, showed that smallpox could be treated and eliminated from large areas by immunizing as few as 6% of the people. So I think that's worth mentioning and, and hopefully drawing a little bit of hope from in these days. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's And 6% um, getting immunized is more hopeful, too, since <laughs> the crazy deniers of immunization exist. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, on December 15th, 1966, Walt Disney, uh, maybe you've heard of him, um, the founder of the future parent company of Marvel Comics, died of lung cancer in Burbank, California at the age of 65. So mm-hmm. uh, Disney, uh, at least as far as we know, actually died. His head is not, you know, preserved somewhere, but maybe. We don't know that it's not preserved somewhere. <laughs> you can't prove that it's not. Yes. <laughs> exactly. There we go. Wake up, sheeple. Uh, <laughs> on the 18th of December, uh, the animated cartoon How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which is based off the Dr. Seuss book of the same name and produced by Chuck Jones, premiered on the CBS network, which began an annual holiday tradition that continues to this day. Wow. I think it's one of the great animated shorts of all time, frankly. 100% agreement. Yes. That's in the canon. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Little little known fact, uh, I have portrayed uh, the Grinch in my uh, uh, high school uh, talent show. Three of us did How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and I I had the lead role. That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. I think the closest to any fiction I got uh, in drama was playing the tin man in uh probably fifth grade so uh, after that i just steered away from the performing arts other than music after that acute mercury poisoning that really (laughs) turned you off from i i developed my own (laughs) aluminum foil (laughs) system (laughs) that did cut me quite a a number of times so uh not the best costumer either uh turns out yeah but good uh, beneficial side effect is that it shielded you from the mind control rays that are constantly being bombarded. By <laughs> That's meat. probably where I got all my ideas during that one, uh, you know, <laughs> afternoon encased in aluminum foil. I finally got the uh, government satellites out of my head or whatever <laughs> other conspiracy theory we want to plug in there. <laughs> Brian, just put in whatever you want. Yes, there is a conspiracy. In fact, there are a great number of conspiracies that are all tripping each other up. And all of those conspiracies are run by paranoid fantasists and ham-fisted clowns. Uh, so let, let's go to Vietnam, everyone. Yay. Oh, boy. Um, on the 7th of December, 1966, Tron Van Vaughn uh, con- 
Tran Van Van. See, there we go. I'm going to just take somebody's name and name it. Considered a leading candidate for president of South Vietnam, was assassinated in Saigon. Uh, Tran had recently been elected to the assembly that was to draw up a new constitution for South Vietnam. He was riding in a car when a man on a motorcycle pulled alongside and shot him four times. Uh, Vo Van N, a 20-year-old member of the Viet Cong, admitted that he had killed Tran on orders from the North Vietnamese guerrilla group. On the 30th of December, Operation Marigold, a secret attempt to reach a compromise solution to the Vietnam War, failed after attempts by Polish diplomat Janusz Lewandowski and the Italian ambassador in Saigon, Giovanni Di Orlandi, in collaboration with American ambassador in Saigon, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. So there was a promising diplomatic attempt that yeah. then failed. Yes. Uh, and then uh, staying sort of in that part of the world, uh, let's talk about what's going on in China's cultural revolution, um, which is getting pretty intense these days. So on the 26th of December, the third phase of the cultural revolution, referred to as the economic warfare and revolutionary rebels phase, began as the Chinese Communist Party printed editorials directing the Red Guards to become revolutionary rebels and to carry the revolution into the factories and farms. Uh, within less than a month, Mao Zedong would send word to the guards to take power from those in authority who are taking the capitalist road and to identify and depose anyone labeled a capitalist roader. Um, yeah, and then on the 30th, the Kangping uh, Avenue incident took place on a major thoroughfare in Shanghai in a street battle between thousands of members of two of China's labor organizations. 30,000 members of the Red Defenders Battalion marched to the Shanghai City Hall. The Workers' Command Post ordered 100,000 members of their organization to head off the defenders. The two groups met each other on Kangpeng Avenue, and a violent clash broke out. According to historians of the Cultural Revolution, this event was generally considered to be the beginning of the massive factional violence that subsequently occurred throughout China. So Ugh. literal warfare in the streets. Yeah, and at this point in being in Portland, although the smoke has sort of <laughs> curtailed the protests, uh, uh, these things seem viscerally real. Uh, just a small couple thousand people clashing uh that's not too abnormal uh, yeah it's so i can very much uh, imagine and live in that time at this moment but seeing two football stadiums full of people going at it like yes yeah. yeah um well on a happier note beatles by the month my <laughs> uh non-existent side podcast uh on December 18th, 1966, London socialite and an heir to the Guinness fortune, Tara Brown, was killed in an auto accident in South Kensington at the age of 21 uh, after running a red light and crashing into a parked truck. According to a later interview with John Lennon, the report of the investigation printed in the Daily Mail was an inspiration for the song, one of my favorite songs, A Day in the Life. You announce that as a Beatles story. It's like, oh, this will lighten things up. And then it's like, oh. 21-year-old kid dies in a car accident. I guess that's what we call lightening things up now. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to 1966. Um, 
uh, well, and and to close things out, uh, on the 26th of December 1966, the first Kwanzaa was celebrated by Dr. Maulana Karenga and other members of the Black Nationalist United Slaves Organization. Seven years later, a newspaper article from the Los Angeles Times Syndicate would provide the first national news about an alternative to Christmas and Hanukkah. By the end of the century, Kwanzaa would be celebrated by over 13 million worldwide. So that closes out uh, what's going on in December of 1966. We're going to take our first break of the episode. When we come back, we're going to talk about Daredevil here on Marvel by the Month. Okay, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Uh, So this is the uh, first of the three stories we're going to be covering uh, that was released uh, in December of 1966. Uh, This is Daredevil number 25, which was written by Stan Lee uh, with art by Gene Colan, inked by Frank Giacoya. The title of the story is Enter the Leapfrog. Um, So let me me give you an idea of what went on in this episode or this issue, and uh, feel free to... Jump in at any point. Oh, <laughs> man. Uh, so uh, Matt Murdock has returned from Europe uh, where he was transported by the masked marauder uh, via a method that is not worth going into. <laughs> uh, as he deplanes, he and his fellow passengers are menaced by a man with springy shoes bouncing all over the tarmac. We learn later that this is a new supervillain, the Leapfrog. He's testing out the gear that he'll use in his legendary criminal career. Uh, so after a little bit of this, uh, Matt gets back to his office where he tells two huge lies to Karen Page and Foggy Nelson. He is a lawyer. So he is is a lawyer. (laughs) This isn't even like a lawyerly lie where it's like it starts from a grain of truth and then sort of, you know, uh, fudges things from there. Also written with a lot of errs and ums. Like he, he's, he's obviously making it up. Uh, (laughs) yeah. I'm surprised that Colin didn't just draw a bunch of flop sweat on him while he was uh, <laughs> trying to fumble his way through this. So uh, the the first whopper that he tells is uh, he says that he was so tuckered out from his ordeal with the Tri-Man Gladiator Masked Marauder um, in which he went to uh, – Never mind. I'm not even going to get into it. Uh, uh, he, was, he was so uh, exhausted from that whole ordeal that he took a vacation to recover, and the usher that he asked to tell them uh, failed to deliver the message. So it's like, okay, that's not a great lie, but it's it's plausible, and it's, more importantly, not something that's easily disproven. Um, the second one, uh, so it turns out that while he was gone, uh, Karen and Foggy opened a letter that was addressed to Matt uh, f- sent by Spider-Man, um, in which uh, Spider-Man said that he knew that Matt was Daredevil. So to get out of that, uh, Matt claims that Daredevil is actually his secret twin brother, Mike Murdock. At this point, I kept picturing John Lovitz for, uh, from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, my, my twin brother, Mike yeah, that's the ticket. So uh, then we cut to the leapfrog. Uh, he's he's got his gear, he's got his costume on, and he uh, has just decided that he's going to break into the first jewelry store that he comes to. Uh, he triggers an alarm. Daredevil responds, but Frogman manages to bounce away um, after a brief tussle. The next day, Karen and Foggy come into the office to find Mike Murdoch sitting at Matt's desk. Uh, he is loud and sarcastic and a real hep cat. Um, <laughs> just the most obnoxious clothing um 
the exact opposite of Matt Murdock personality wise in pretty much every way as he's you know kind of doing his song and dance as Mike um, a the radio uh, has a broadcast about another sighting of the leapfrog so Mike takes off uh, because everyone knows that he's Daredevil <laughs> so he's gonna go Daredevil it up um, so uh, Daredevil intercepts the the frog the leapfrog sorry not frog man that's a different guy um, uh, in a in Central Park I think it's meant to be um, they have a back and forth battle uh, and Daredevil wins by ironically knocking him into a pond um, and uh, the issue ends with Matt talking to a sulking foggy about the fact that the leapfrog wants to retain them as his lawyers which Matt is all for because costumed characters really grab him um <laughs> so that's the issue uh what do we think of this one? Oh. well it, it strikes me just at the very beginning how things are different you know before 911 and things like that because you can have a guy jumping around on an airport and the opening <laughs> scene disrupting flights and it's like and the police are like i guess we should just kind of not do anything you know? yeah it's like <laughs> i mean i think there there'd be like tasers out at a minimum you know in present day yeah also he's he's wearing a face covering and it was a bit jarring to me just how normal that looked yeah. The last few months. It's an appropriate mask he has on. You know, he's not wearing his frog suit yet. He is, does have a green business suit. I thought that was nice that he at least stays on brand when he's, you yeah. know, not in costume. And I sort of accidentally uh, referred to this earlier, but so Leapfrog is the second frog themed villain that Daredevil has faced in the last 25 <laughs> issues. Uh, I uh, We were talking to um, our friend Dave DeWanch uh, in an episode a uh, couple weeks ago, uh, and he just, you know, he, he posited the thought that Daredevil might have the worst rogues gallery ever. And I mean, Frog, uh, Leapfrog is doing nothing to dispel that. When like Stiltman is the more me- memorable villain, you know, it's yeah. like the bar is low. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I was, I saw Stiltman is coming back in the next Daredevil issue and I was very excited about it just because it's, that's what we have to drag ourselves through here is, uh, <laughs> uh, and also uh, I've mentioned before I grew up, uh, my grandfather had a junkyard. My father and uncles worked there. So I have put springs on boards and strapped them to my shoes and uh, springs that could actually get you to jump, let's say, six feet into the air, um, mm-hmm. which are like suspension from a car. And what happens is, is you you fall really horribly. Um, <laughs> you can't land. Uh, you, you jump in the air and you try to land on the springs just the idea of how these springs work started to really annoy me just because I've tried it. Um, yeah, and it seems like he would get super hurt, you know? Yes, I mean, yeah. he doesn't have superpowers, you know? They're just springs, you know? On, yeah. like, penny loafers, you know? Like, they're on they're on <laughs> loafers. Like I'm just like, your shoes are going to come right off. How heavy are the springs? I really got in the weeds. My suspension of disbelief <laughs> dropped right out of the picture with this guy. Rob, I think it's a testament to your character that after inventing leapfrog's gear you didn't immediately decide to go rob a jewelry store yeah i know you didn't turn evil i know (laughs) (laughs) it could have been just that i fell down immediately upon landing from my first jump uh so hard that i was like well that's over um but that normally would jar someone in the marvel universe into crimes just straight into crimes and and speaking of you know, folks who turn out to maybe not be as good as uh you'd like to believe they are um this has been going on for a while, and I know it's kind of like a standard staple of 1960s Marvel comics, but man, Matt Murdock lies to his friends a lot. Mm-hmm. 
like a lot, a lot. And this one, it's like even like it's really clear in this issue. Foggy is not buying uh, the line that that Matt is trying to sell him about Mike Murdoch. Like he is intensely skeptical of this. And we've seen Matt in so many other issues just gaslight Foggy over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I also, it's like this is seriously the best lie he could come up with. Uh, like I know he was caught flat footed and he had to you know think on his feet, but he's in trouble because he's having trouble managing his secret identities. So then he creates another secret identity for himself. (laughs) I guess there's an assumption that the readership is young enough or invested enough in the reality that they won't step back. And it's like, you know, he's being kind of a jerk here. You know, know, it, it doesn't, is it really justifiable? You know, the really troubling thing is that Matt Murdoch's ethical, you know, moral gray area is sort of rubbing off on foggy and caring because they just have no problem with straight up opening the guy's mail. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and you know, um, so Spider-Man writes Matt Murdock a letter to tell him that he knows that he's Daredevil, as one does. Yeah. And um, I love it that when um, Karen is um, feeling some regret and Foggy says, don't reproach yourself for that, Karen. I mean, yeah, it's only, you know, a federal offense. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. To be fair, was it a letter addressed to, from like with a return address from Spider Man on it? You know, because it's like it's from Spider Man. We're not yeah. made of stone. You know, we wanted to open it. But I mean, that right there, there's his out. All Matt had to do was just be like, guys, seriously, Spider Man wrote me a letter <laughs> saying that I'm Daredevil. Come on. But now we have Mike Murdoch. Oh boy. Yeah. Now we've got yep. Mike Murdoch. We're going to be stuck with Mike Murdoch for a while. Um, also. Mike wears sunglasses all the time because Matt is still blind. <laughs> so it's like not only does he have another identity where none of these three guys can be seen in the same place at the same time, but you can't see their eyes either. So like, <laughs> how is this going to work out? Uh, I don't know. Just like the beginning of like a sitcom story where it's like, <laughs> I have to pretend to be someone else. And then like, it's going to end with, you know, Matt Murdoch and Mike Murdoch having, you know, dates at the same restaurant at the same time. And having to like yeah. leave and come back, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah basically. I was hoping for bosom buddies. I want this to just go all the way <laughs> to cross dressing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I thought uh, in honor of our guests uh, with uh, for this episode, we'd also not only discuss these issues, but uh, we'd consider whether or not uh, we can make a case for them to be included in the canon. I'm going to treat this as if I have been retained as the defense for <laughs> this issue. Uh, I'm going to give it a, a legitimate shot. So here's my case for, for this being in the canon. Uh, it is the first appearance of Mike Murdoch, which mm-hmm. is... An ongoing storyline, whether you it's fondly remembered or not, it is a significant part of early Daredevil stories. It's the first appearance of the Leapfrog, a brand new villain, um, and it does have Gene Colan artwork, and you know, so it can't be that bad. I, mean, I do like in the kind of the Leapfrog Daredevil fight scenes. It, uh, Leapfrog is like a single shade of green. Daredevil's is red, and so kind of the um, the contrast with the colors, I think, is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Otherwise. A lot of this doesn't really stick with me uh, personally, you know, so I can't speak for Kevin, but, you know. Well, I mean, let's not forget that, you know, this is the first appearance of the Leapfrog, a a major antagonist of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. (laughs) You might remember in Infinity War when he did the leap. (laughs) That one time in the background. Kind of blurry. Yeah. Yep. I think there there is no basis for this to be part of the canon. Um, uh, Yeah. Mike Murdoch uh, does recur 
um, intermittently throughout Daredevil's, uh, you know, timeline to this day, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But when he does, it's always like, oh, yeah, it's like the trapster. It's just something that you <laughs> vaguely remember. Mm-hmm. And then it's part of some convoluted storyline now. Um, yeah. Leapfrog. Yeah, no way. Gene Colan, <laughs> Nice. Um, but uh, Gene Colan does artwork on other things, too. So mm-hmm. I would say um, move to strike harshly. Yeah, you- you can include them all, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think being serious for a second, this issue to me is emblematic of the the struggles or kind of the challenges that early Daredevil faced. Um, the learning curve, especially kind of coming after Spider-Man and trying to trying to strike gold twice, you know, have lightning strike twice in the same kind of general concept of, you know, the wise cracking street hero. Um, instead of spider senses, he has these heightened senses and radar. Oh, and he's blind and he's a lawyer, you know, like, um, yeah, you know, uh, you talked about the rogues gallery earlier uh, and leapfrog is not <laughs> a very intimidating <laughs> addition to the ranks of like the owl and Mr. Fear and gladiator. But um, he feels to me like a consequence of the kind of conveyor belt production schedule these books were on. Like, an, I can imagine, you know, Gene being like, we need a bad guy for Daredevil 25 and stands like, um, ah, geez, how about a guy who, uh, who jumps? Yeah, yeah, he's got these, uh, these springs on his shoes. Yeah, special shoes. And he, and he puts on a frog costume. Make it work. I, I think that is probably way closer to the truth than hmm. uh, that anyone involved would like to admit. But <laughs> that yeah, seems I, like I, the I, full I, substance of this hmm. issue. Well, okay. So, uh, so Daredevil twenty five uh, will not make the canon, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. um, let's go ahead and take a break, and then uh, Rob, do you want to walk us through uh, this month's issue of Amazing Spider Man? I would love to. All right. Well, everybody, stay tuned. We'll be right back here on Marvel by the Month. <laughs> Welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Let's talk about Amazing Spider-Man number 46, written by Stan Lee, art by John Romita. It's called The Sinister Shocker. So the issue starts off with a bang. Spidey is sticking to the wall of a building containing a vault that's being shaken open by a new supervillain, The Shocker. Um, The Shocker wears Vibroshock gauntlets. Uh, patent pending that add power to his punches and allow him to fire incredibly strong vibrations at objects and Spider-Man. His vibration power also makes it hard for Spidey to hit him squarely. So Shocker leaves Spidey in a heap and takes off with the cash. So uh, just pretty much easily beats him kind of how Spider-Man usually meets his villains um, gets trounced. Yeah. Very standard uh, introduction of a villain in a Spider-Man story. Um, Peter Parker got beaten up, but at least he got photos of Spidey getting beaten up by a brand new supervillain. So he knows uh, Jonah definitely will want them. He gets a ride to the Bugle from Harry Osborn, who offers Peter the chance to room with him in the apartment that Norman's renting for him. So free rent Um, from the Green Goblin, (laughs) you know, free rent. (laughs) It's New York. Um, he's he's reluctant to accept because he's not sure how Aunt May will take it, but he finds out Anna Watson has offered Aunt May the chance to move in. So that all works out. Um, as Peter leaves, he's shadowed by Patch, 
the alter ego of Bugle reporter and ex-con Frederick Foswell. He's trying to figure out uh, how Pete gets all these sweet, sweet photos of Spider-Man. Then we get the secret origin of the Shocker, which is basically he was the safecracker who got caught and invented his VibroShock gadget in prison. Uh, not exactly reformed. Um, <laughs> Our tax dollars at work. <laughs> yeah, it, it, not the most compelling origin either. He's just like, oh, I was bad at safe cracking, and then I invented a thing. Okay, <laughs> anyway, on with the story. <laughs> right. If he had like, I don't know, license plate armor or something, uh, that would make more sense. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> Patch almost catches Peter turning into Spider-Man, but Spidey notices that he's there, winds up doing a little ventriloquism act to throw him off the scent, makes a full like Spider-Man costume dummy. Um, Spidey overhears a cop calling in a shocker sighting near the Federal Reserve Bank, so now it's time for round two. Usually these go a little better than round one for Spider-Man. Let's see. Um, After several pages of back and forthing, Spidey webs up Shocker's thumbs, which keeps him from vibro-shocking. He's got little buttons on his gauntlets. So the story ends with May and Peter both getting ready to move on to the next phases of their lives. But as we've seen in the last several issues, Peter ends the story severely depressed about the role Spider-Man plays in his life. Just He always brings us down. Pete, come on. Um, so what do you think? What's the, how, how'd this one land? I want to say something that we're probably all thinking the villain. He's named the shocker. Yes. He doesn't shock. He (laughs) vibrates. Right. Right. Shouldn't he be called the vibrator? (laughs) I I don't know if the comics code would have allowed that. Yeah. (laughs) It just seems like the elephant in the room. Yeah. 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 Maybe we should just refer to him as the vibrator from here on out. Um, (laughs) Look, his powers are, they're silly, but like one of the things that, that, that shocked me from reading this issue uh, was just, I had kind of forgotten that the shocker is actually a really well thought through villain. Like it's, it's a really well constructed villain. Like his origin is terrible his, his origin is nothing, but like the, the costume is super practical. Like he's got, you know, the gauntlets, which look pretty cool. He's got the thumb buttons to activate the, the shocking. So it's not, you know, that's how he uses it. Like that, that part is thought through. Um, he's got, you know, the padded costume to protect himself and the heavy boots and everything. Uh, Yellow and Brown is not the most compelling color (laughs) scheme, but you know, not everyone can be green and purple. So I was going to say the real shocker is that anybody thought yellow and Brown was a great color combo. for this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like, there's, it's it doesn't leap off the page at you, but you know it's it's like that. I guess Daredevil wasn't using yellow and brown anymore, so it was available. Um, <laughs> but uh, but you know, like and, and for all the vibrator jokes you can make, like the offensive and, and defensive powers are actually really well thought through. Like the fact that that he can like vibrate himself so that Spidey can't land a clean punch. It's like okay, well that explains why this his fight is not over in the first thirty seconds. Um, and you know the ability to like use it, you know, to make his punches stronger and and to use it on objects and things like that. Like I was actually really amazed because I I've always thought the shocker is just kind of a nothing nobody villain, and I don't even know if I've actually read this issue before. But like going through it, I'm like, you know, 
every criticism I have, you've basically taken care of it. Yeah, he's got a pretty good power set, and yeah. even though that his origin is kind of boring, but it's also kind of practical. It's like, I'm a thief, I invented this to be a better thief, and now I'm going to be a better thief. You yeah. know, I so. had time on my hands. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and his power set throws into stark relief the Leapfrog's power set and how it's part of the formula of this that, you know, you have your first meeting and it doesn't go well and the hero is always like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to go up against this guy again. You know, here it really works. And the fact that, like, Spidey actually has to work out, he's like, okay, how does how do his stupid gauntlets work? Like, okay, mm-hmm. they're buttons. All right, I got to figure out how to disable the buttons. Like, it's almost like a video game logic to it. It's mm-hmm. like you got to figure out what the boss's weakness is, and then you got to figure out a way to use you know your techniques to defeat you know according to his you know his actual weaknesses. Like, he can't web them up because he can just vibrate that off. Um, you know, he can't land a punch because he can roll with it, and he can't get too close because then he'll get punched. Um, so yeah, it's like it actually, yeah. Shocker worked out okay as a villain. Yeah, um, and um, I think Spider-Man comics in particular are good at doing what you just said of having Peter Parker face this problem, you know, as Spider-Man, and okay, how do I figure out how to solve this thing? And the drama's like, okay, how is he going to use his intellect and figure it out? You know, so it's mm-hmm. always it's, it's always very, even though it's a foregone conclusion usually, but it's very satisfying when it comes about. You know? Yeah, that's what I'm starting to find. Although there's still a lot of words in here. Um, <laughs> Um, Spider-Man, especially with John Romita on it now, um, seems to be getting a little more uh, allowing the the picture to speak some of the thousand words. Um, yeah. yeah, I've said this before, but Stan's writing, you know, 80% of the Marvel comics that are coming out every month. Why is he not making his job easier? <laughs> like, why is he just putting twice as many words on a page as he needs to. I mean, I guess it's just that that was the convention of the time. It's not just Marvel comics. It's literally any other comics you're looking at. You know, they're just, they're all completely overwritten. Speaking of uh, older comics, I do want to say that there's the part where um, he picks up that um, Patch, a.k.a. Foswell, has spied on him and may know what his identity is. So he has to quickly improvise a thing to like, you know, to, to throw him off the scent. And it reminded me a lot of like, 1950s golden age like Batman or Superman ones where it's like oh someone knows my identity so I've got to come up with this sort of crazy thing on the fly <laughs> that will trick them into the truth you know and this he yes. like you know makes this fake dummy and they're on the corner like it's basically like lifting his cowl and lowering it to disguise his voice so it's <laughs> like you know yeah like you're like Parker you owe me photos like okay Spider-Man and and <laughs> falls for it you know so but it's fun it's you know lighthearted stuff yeah. yeah and that's how superman got super ventriloquist <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a good thing foswell didn't actually decide to like turn the corner and confront spider-man and peter parker with what he knew <laughs> yeah thank thank goodness he stayed there uh, the fact that he can create that dummy out of his spider-man costume i don't know filling it with webbing or something and uh yeah. seems like that that's not just a quick Foswell's going to come around the corner before that's done. Uh, but I don't know. Now I, I have this image of like, you know, lonely Peter Parker just making like web dummies in his room to practice his kissing on. <laughs> like dancing and kissing. Yeah. <laughs> I want to draw that now. Just Peter Parker with the Spider Man costume, you know, stuck to the ceiling, just sort of dancing around. Oh, so sad. Um, you talk, you're talking about sad. Uh, so. One thing I did want to touch on that I actually found pretty 
affecting uh, was the very last scene in the issue. Um, and, and this is something that we've seen in the last several issues. Uh, it's because they're building up to the the famous Spider-Man No More story, which kicks off in, in Amazing Spider-Man 50. But, I mean, intentionally or not, I... Uh, Peter Parker is really embodying a lot of like the classic symptoms of post-traumatic stress and depression. Um, like, especially when he talks about like losing his capacity for happiness. Um, mm. And I, I just thought like that was, we, we've, we've mentioned this before in the podcast is like the Spider-Man stories are great, but really what sells in the quality of amazing Spider-Man as a title is the human drama in Peter Parker's life. It's all the stuff that happens when he's not in costume. And I think like that goes right back to, I don't know, you know, what particular insight Stan may or may not have had, but like he knows how to write this kid as like, you know, kind of a a, a damaged person. Um, and I every time something like that comes up, I'm just I'm I'm really struck by just how vivid this is for a 1960s comic book character. It's clear to me that um, of all the titles that Stan is churning out every month at this point that. Um, he knows he has something really special here that it, it, it seems obvious that it's his favorite because he obviously puts a lot of work and thought into it. It could be formulaic in the wrong hands, but there's something going on here where, you know, there's that X factor, as we mm -hmm. like to say, that this seems to be the book that he really cares about. And I can imagine that he really gets excited about writing every month. So, uh, so Rob, do you want to uh, try to make the case for the canon for this issue? I think this this uh, definitely over the Daredevil issue has a better case to <laughs> okay, be made. Okay, so you're starting starting from a real high bar. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Shocker does. Um, he he. I wouldn't say he's the A list, but he's a B list Spider Man villain from here on out. Um, so, a pretty important part of the Rogues Gallery. Uh, Peter moving in with Harry Osborn. We're breaking away from the the Aunt May, the constant Aunt May storyline, um, and uh, it's just continues. Uh, you know, John Romita's run on Spider Man, like it's cementing that he he can own this uh, from the art perspective. One thing I will say in um, the Shocker's defense, when we have like our lasting influence category, um, is that, you know, he's obviously continued, you know, up to the present day. He was in the uh, Superior Foes of Spider-Man line, which we did an episode that. on and <laughs> which we voted as being canonical, which is very funny. And I can't see very lower echelon Spider-Man villains kind of betraying each other and, Someone said it might have been Kevin that said it was like the um, it's always sunny in Philadelphia version of supervillains. You know? um, and in the movie Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, Bokeem Woodbine basically plays the shocker. And he like he's basically a, a, like one of the vultures henchmen. So he doesn't wear the full costume. But he wears a jacket with like that yellow lining, which is sort of a little Easter egg for shocker fans. Yep. So it's like it's fun that it comes up, you know, um, I mean. I will say, I like this. I mean, the artistic level on this is really strong. I don't know if the um, the story itself is like that memorable, apart from just the fact that it's a real solid Spider-Man story of the era. So that would be my only question on that. I feel like this is a strong B plus, maybe A minus issue. Like, um, I do feel the you know the coincidence at the very beginning that Spider-Man just happens to be hanging out on the building where, that where the shocker is. <laughs> perfecting his uh, vibrating powers um, was a little, uh, you know, a little too coincidental for me. And um, the, the 
the Aunt May hand wringing, you know, uh, got old for me really quick. <laughs> but um, this, like, this is a very solid example of this title hitting all its marks. It's not the most memorable story. It's more like setting things up, I think, which is what might keep me from say, calling it canonical. But it's definitely worth reading. Yeah, I, I, I think the thing that keeps this out of the canon, honestly, is the fact that it's surrounded by a bunch of other very strong Spider-Man issues. You know, like yeah. just before this, you've got the reveal of the Green Goblin, um, which was like, you know, a year and a half in the making. You've got the, you know, the debut of Mary Jane Watson yeah, and the Rhino's first appearance, I think, is you know overshadows the Shocker's first appearance, and then right after this, you have the Spider-Man No More story and the introduction of the Kingpin. So, you know, I I think it's just I I would put this like you all have been saying, like I, I'd put it in the Hall of Very Good, but I wouldn't put it in the Hall of Fame. So that's well put. When we do the episode, it's like it always feels like a rejection if we say something's not in the canon, and right? Like, <laughs> and there's no way not to, but that doesn't mean necessarily that it's bad it's just you know not on a certain level you know right right yeah. i mean like for the canon to mean anything you need to to exclude some folks mm -hmm. and you know sorry sorry shocker you didn't make the cut this yeah. time <laughs> well let's go ahead uh take our final break of the episode uh and then when we come back uh the main event the full four-part cosmic doom storyline uh don't go anywhere this is gonna be good we'll be right back here on marvel by the month <laughs> Okay, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Uh, we are going to talk about the four-issue Cosmic Doom storyline. This is Fantastic Four, numbers 57 through 60, all of which were written by Stan Lee, with art by Jack Kirby, inked by Joe Sinnott. Uh, and the titles of the stories, uh, number 57 was Enter Doctor Doom, 58, The Dismal Dregs of Defeat, 59, Doomsday, and number 60, The Peril and The Power. Uh, so we have covered the first couple issues uh, in previous episodes, um, but just to quickly recap, uh, so we have it all in one place. In the uh, the first of these issues, Fantastic Four number 57, um, while the Fantastic Four are busy dealing with Sandman's escape from prison, uh, Doctor Doom lures the incredibly gullible Silver Surfer to Latveria and steals his cosmic power from him. In uh, the next issue, 58, uh, the Fantastic Four face Doctor Doom, uh, after he's gotten cosmically powered up, they are completely overpowered. Um, the only reason they survive is because Reed Richards admits that they're powerless before Doom. And Doom is so giddy about what he interprets as his enemy's ultimate humiliation that he allows them to live a little longer. So now uh, we kick off with Fantastic Four number 59, which came out last month. Um, this one begins with Reed Richards broadcasting a desperate call to every nation on Earth to come together against the greatest enemy the world has ever faced. Uh, but of course, the Ruskies uh, disregard his plea and launch bombers to take out Doom and score a huge propaganda victory. Um, then Doom just destroys them without a thought. Uh, then he talks himself out of being mad. Uh, then he goes to the dungeons to taunt the Silver Surfer to make himself feel better, I guess. Um, so then meanwhile, uh, Black Bolt uh, sends his inhuman subjects to the shelters in the core of the Great Refuge because he's going to bust the inhumans out of the Great Refuge. Um, only his brother Maximus knows what's about to happen, and he is absolutely terrified. 
Uh, Black Bolt opens his mouth to shout, and he shatters the Great Refuge and the negative zone around it that was keeping the Inhumans imprisoned. Uh, so the Great Refuge is basically rubble now, um, and the six Inhumans who make up the royal family in court, which is Gorgon, Karnak, Medusa, uh, Crystal, Black Bolt, and Triton, uh, they're going to go out into the world uh, while the rest of the Inhumans rebuild the Great Refuge. Um, back at the Baxter building, Reed is monitoring Doom flying around on the surfer's board and just messing with folks around the world. Uh, Reed has designed a prototype of a bat-shaped device that he tests out on Ben without Ben's knowledge or consent. Um, and it floors Ben and makes him extremely angry, which is exactly what Reed was hoping that it would do, which comes off as kind of a jerk move, but... It pays off in the end. Um, now they just have to make a full-size version of it before Doom strikes again. But are they going to have time? Uh, so that's the cliffhanger that leads, in, leads into Fantastic Four number 60. Um, this starts off with the Fantastic Four watching a monitor that shows Doom raising a ship out of the water uh, with a pillar of rock. Uh, Reed and Sue and Ben know they can't face him until the army finishes manufacturing Reed's what's this. Um, but Wyatt Wingfoot arrives to tell them that Johnny is determined to stop Doom no matter the cost. So the rest of the FF borrow a faster than sound intercontinental cruiser from the Black Panther. Um, they're going to try to save Johnny from his own stupidity. <laughs> um, Doom uh, is ready for them when they arrive. He crushes their ship with a fast growing tree and then. Uh, it's time for the FF to narrowly escape one reality-bending attack after another. Ben goes straight after Doom um, in a contest of strength, and he actually gets the better of Doom for a moment, which is a pretty cool uh, scene. Reed and Sue find and rescue Johnny, and Doom turns his attention to them. Uh, Sue tricks Doom into flying into an invisible mountain, uh, which I loved. Uh, then uh, Reed's uh, anti-cosmic flying wing finally arrives on the battlefield. Uh, it zaps Doom and weakens him, but not badly enough. Uh, an infuriated Doom pursues it uh, to destroy it, laughing at Reed's failure. But that wasn't the point. The point was to lure Doom into space, which Galactus had specifically forbidden the Silver Surfer from flying into. And because Doom has the Surfer's power, he basically explodes. Um, <laughs> but we don't know his exact fate. Uh, and the Surfer's board soars with no rider towards Doom's castle where the Silver Surfer is being held. And that's where this epic wraps up. Um, it's quite a journey. Um, what were some of your takeaways from, from this crazy epic storyline? Uh, I'm sure you guys talked about it when you did 57 the first time, but um, when Doom and the Silver Surfer encounter each other, you know, Doom sees him coming from a mile off, you know, I mean, he's got like all day sucker on him, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and he even, the Surfer even says, you know, you seem kind of sketchy to me, frankly, but I'll turn my back to you while you get in the sinister apparatus, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like Doom might have just sent him a letter, you know, it's like, I'm a Latvian prince who needs money. Give me the password for your power cosmic, you know. Yeah, for a guy who used, who used to work for Galactus, the Silver Surfer sure gets impressed to get a royal summons from Dr. Like, oh, I've never been to a before. He's been trapped on Earth for a while. It's like, it's basically us in COVID time, you know. He's just, he's like, I'm kind of bored on Earth. This seems interesting. Um, but yeah, he's so naive, uh, just painfully naive yeah. and watching doom give him the pitch is 
the greasiest thing uh, I've heard from Doom, and like Doom pretending to be good is uh, yeah. is the grossest thing I've read uh, in Fantastic Four. I think I, I shared uh, a panel of Doom giving the Surfer the pitch um, mm-hmm. on our social media. It wound up being like I think the most popular thing we ever posted because it's just <laughs> it's such a funny like he's so clearly talking out of you know both sides of his mouth and but one thing i didn't notice uh before i posted that single panel up there is like as doom is just talking about like how his people love him so much and how he you know his his main goal in life is just to ensure their happiness and prosperity it's like he's not making eye contact with a silver surfer like he's really obviously like looking up and away from him just like oh yeah that's the ticket even power yeah even doom can't look you straight in the eye while he's lying i do like how this is doom at his most dracula like and how there's this gothic quality to doom where he's got his cape and he lives in a castle and he literally like drains his life force and there's a big panel of him like looming over the surfer when he's done it and near the end like the villagers see the castle glowing with an unearthly light you know so it's like now now there's a super villain you know yeah yeah Uh, One thing I was really grateful for this entire storyline, as far as I could see, I mean, there's not a lot of Wyatt Wingfoot in it, but um, there was no, uh, he didn't wind up saying anything and no one said anything about him that just read as really problematic uh, in 2020, which is great. Um, I mean, he was never used as the butt of any jokes, um, you know, even back in the day. But some of the ways that they have him talking about himself or, or have others talking about him which was meant to be complimentary at the time, uh, doesn't age super well. So, um, you know, no references to, you know, possessing the spirit of his ancestors or being the mightiest brave, uh, in the tribe or anything like that. So that was, that was great. Uh, you know, Rob has talked about how, um, every time Wyatt shows up at a panel, I cringe, just clench a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, same thing with uh, with T'Challa. He just makes a brief appearance as he loans them a super sweet aircraft, um, mm-hmm. and no special mention. Ben doesn't say any you know thing that is offensive <laughs> or is offensive yep. now. Yeah. Um, Did you notice that T'Challa is wearing the original concept? Yeah, his, mask? his mouth and his mouth and a nose are visible in that as yeah. he appears on the viewer. Yeah, I listened to y'all's Black Panther episodes in preparation for this. And so it's like, oh, he's wearing the look that they had originally designed, like y'all talked about, which mm-hmm. apparently they chose against doing because he would be on the cover revealing that he is, you know, yeah. a person of color, you know. Yeah. So yeah. now they're, they're doing it so it's like where we can just show him as a person of color, you know. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. One thing about uh, number 58, the dismal dregs mm-hmm. of defeat, and um, the dismal dregs are one of my favorite bands. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's one thing to read about, you know, uh, the representation in, in these issues around this time or to listen to like, you guys, or say um, the Baxter Building podcast, if you guys are familiar with that. Mm, um, mm-hmm. But I'm still never quite prepared when I start reading issues from this time period for how poorly Sue Storm comes across. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But I will say that I do like um, some of the uh, the lines that the thing gets off uh, in the, in these issues uh, in, in 58 when I'm... 
he has the silly bit where Reed scares him while he's reading ghost stories. And he says, I was just practicing my isometric panic lessons. And I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> or um, when Doom calls him an unspeakable blot on the escutcheon of humanity. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think Stan has more fun writing the dialogue in Fantastic Four than any other book. Like yeah. everyone has a really clear and unique voice. Um, you know, Doom is so arch and Ben is just hilarious. And you know that like half the time I think Stan is trying to crack Kirby up with the way mm-hmm. that he's writing uh, the thing. And yeah, I, I think it's it just it, it's hard not to read that as just a little bit of a love letter to Kirby. Like, although things did wind up souring at, at points in their relationship, like there was yeah. tremendous fondness there too. Like in, in 59, when he and Reed have this um, kind of ridiculous fight uh, <laughs> and the thing says, Hey, that's my pizza eaten arm that Reed is wrapped around. Like yeah. I laughed out loud at that one. Well, there's some funny, there's a funny dynamic with them in 59 because there's a part early on where the where Ben kind of needles Reed when Reed is seeming depressed and they can't figure it out. And it's like to make and it's to make Reed mad so he'll like, you know, get his action up and he'll think of a plan against Doom. And then later um Reed, you know, tosses his drone at Ben uh to mess with him, but also, you know, to try it out and it gets Ben mad and it kind of proves how the drone is good at getting people angry, you know. But it, yes. it's almost like the two of them kind of get each other and it's like it's like maybe sue doesn't get reed on the level that ben does or maybe they're just kind of different but it's mm-hmm. interesting that they're that there's kind of a friendship there it besides part of them like just bickering with each other constantly yeah we've mentioned this before but i think stan sees a lot of himself in reed and mm-hmm. kirby definitely sees a lot of himself <laughs> in the thing and mm-hmm. i it's it's not hard to read their dynamic into those characters yeah the the one thing that i i've started doing when whenever johnny appears is uh waiting for johnny (laughs) to pull a leroy jenkins and just go running (laughs) they're they're making their plan they're coming up you know reed's building technology and johnny's just like off he's going to go fight him all alone like leroy jenkins and so i think it every time i i every time he's doing it now and it makes johnny way more hilarious to me because i just actually apply that dialogue to him and that is what he does he's and you know he's a hothead no you know no pun intended or actually intended yeah sure own it and the fact that he does that, uh, he, he he goes after Doom in 60, um, which is the most ill-advised plan ever. <laughs> it's actually what what brings all the drama to a head because Reed and Sue and Ben were just going to basically hunker down and wait till this thing, th- this, this big drone, this cosmic wing uh, was going to be finished uh, being built. And then they were going to go after Doom. But because Johnny is heading out to take on Doom single-handedly, they're like, oh, we can't let him just get murdered. So like they all have to like borrow a ship from T'Challa and then get over there as quickly as they can. Um, otherwise, this is this is it for Johnny. Yeah. It's funny how in 59, Johnny like um, tries to, you know, enhance his flame abilities and speed so he can take him on again. So at least he's sort of like training and preparing, even though his basic, you know, mode of attack is different so there's really i can't see how i think there would be a different outcome you know but it's, it's, it's like for him he's thinking it through and still kind of messing it up but yes. you know you can kind of appreciate it's like maybe he's a, a pre- he's growing a little bit 
Yeah. 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 You said yeah. smart for Johnny earlier too. Yeah. That's like definitely <laughs> a, a thing that we say pretty often. Uh, yes. And Johnny is like, yeah, he's like Morty on Rick and Morty. He's uh, just, he knows where the nullifier is or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, he can tell if this is a plasma coil inductor by looking mm-hmm. at it. Doesn't know exactly what it does, but he's seen mm-hmm. enough of them that he's familiar. Uh, so you can send him into Reed's garage to get something yeah. and he will. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. One thing I like about Doom in these is just the fact that he's um doesn't kill the Fantastic Four and it's kind of well motivated. It's not just sort of a, you know, old-timey villain having to needing to explain his plan. It's like it seems like really baked into him that he doesn't want to kill them. He wants to kind of defeat and humiliate them. Because yeah. it's like if you think about if you think of step back and think about Doctor Doom as we all like to do, you know, it's like he could assassinate them if he wanted to, but he would get no satisfaction out of that, you know? So he has this sort of lawful evil D and D alignment where, you know, it's like, it's like he, he can only do a certain things and he wants to like prove Reed wrong more than even really winning in a way. It's, he'd rather lose and think he's right, you know? Yeah. Maybe I'm taking that a little. No, no, I think that's um, right. I think it's, that's his, like for doom to be killed. mm -hmm. That's not as big of a defeat as to be humiliated. So, uh, so that's what he's applying to Mm -hmm. his foes. He's like, he's, he's not, (laughs) that's his version of empathy. (laughs) And that might explain his actions at the beginning of issue 60, where he's just goofing around with these new powers. Like he strands Mm -hmm. an ocean liner on top of a pile of rocks when he could be like raining down elemental havoc on all the capitals of the world. Yeah. He's yeah. Just like messing with the heads of, of like the rich and powerful pretty much. He's like, look what I can do. Yeah. It's like the part in Superman three where Superman's briefly evil and he flies around doing things like straightening the leaning tower of Pisa just to mess with people. You know? I think one of the things that's really interesting about this is that basically by giving doom, this virtually limitless power, it just reveals how limited a person he is. Like yeah, he, so. he has, he has no imagination. He has no humility. He has no restraint. He has no self-control. <laughs> like there's just so much missing from him. Like, and he won't kill the fantastic four because what purpose would there be for him? If Reed yeah. Richards was gone, like he defines his entire reality against Reed Richards like that's the only thing he just he wants to win and even winning isn't enough for him like he wants to be in a constant state of winning um but the only uh one thing I wanted to make sure that we touched on uh before we we uh wrapped up uh the discussion of this story was just uh so in the background of all this um the ongoing inhuman storyline is also playing out um and honestly like I'm I'm glad that this wrapped up here because it has felt a little like, okay, you know, ready to kind of achieve some closure on this. But, um, you know, basically since, since the end of the Galactus storyline, the Inhumans have been trapped inside of the great refuge, um, by this dome, which is referred to as the negative zone, which is not the negative zone, which we're about to meet. But, um, uh, and so it like, it, it's like, how are they going to get out? How are they going to get out? And this has kind of been Johnny's subplot, like trying to rescue the Inhumans. Um, but they finally get out here and, and they get out because uh, Black Bolt finally uh, shouts. He finally uses his voice uh, for the first time. Um, and uh, it's, 
I, I think that the whole setup for that is really, really interesting. And, and I think this starts in, it, this is in issue 59, um, where uh, the only person who knows what's about to happen is his brother, Maximus. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's terrified. And he just, and Maximus has sabotaged Black Bolt. He's tried to usurp his power. He's, you know, he's betrayed him. Um, but he's like cowering and like clinging to his brother and Black Bolt just puts an arm over him and shields him and protects him while he shouts and brings the city down around them. And I just thought it was a really affecting moment. Um, yeah. I thought it was worth calling out. The cover is really good too, of 59, where it yeah. has this very dynamic issue of like Black Bolt doing the shout and Fantastic Four who aren't in the scene, but they're like reacting and there's all this like energy and light radiating out of it. So Yeah. It's been a big build to put him over with the yes. the, the power he has. And yeah, and it, I his relationship with Maximus is is very cool and very layered, which is, you know, Maximus does really and he always does, but this is a good setup for his character of just sort of vacillating between totally insane and <laughs> very very smart and calculating and obviously super intelligent but uh, they've done some really cool things with maximus lately but uh you know i've always thought there was more to be delved from this character and this is a good setup to show his complexity one thing that confused slash frustrated me about the inhumans part in this story is so the royal family and hangers on leave (laughs) the great refuge and then they end up quote, on the other side of the mountains from where Doom is fighting the Fantastic Four. And I'm thinking, okay, so these stories are going to come together and the, the Inhumans are going to play a part in nope. what's going to happen. Nope. And um, you see some, like, farmers or whatever who um, just laying around with their binoculars and they see Karnak, like, chopping down a tree with his hand and then Crystal starting a fire. And why, why are they doing that? <laughs> and then there's a fight, you know, and Medusa like takes the rifles away with her hair and everything. And, um, and then that's just kind of it. Yeah. I, I think in the next issue or two, they, the storylines do wind up merging. So there is a payoff to it at some point, but with the inhuman storyline, I, I wish they had done something more like the way that Thor is structured right now. So you get basically like 16 pages of the main Thor story, and then you get a four or five page tales of Asgard story. And I really yeah. wish, and ironically, that's exactly what winds up happening with the inhumans. They wind up being the backup feature in Thor for a little <laughs> while. Um, and, and I wish like, I mean, not that I want to give up on a 20 page Fantastic Four story, because these are some of Lee and Kirby's best things. But um, but I do think that, like, if it was really just kind of really clearly segmented off on its own section, you wouldn't have the expectation, like you were just saying, Kevin, of like, okay, when's this all coming together? Um, Mm -hmm. Because it just doesn't, you know. Yeah. If if I have one criticism of these issues, it's like the last page or two of 60 feels really, really rushed, and it takes away from from Reed's victory. You know, like, um, I like that it's not a deus ex machina thing. Like, uh, one thing that was running in the back of my mind as I was reading this is, like, what they ought to do is call Galactus and say, hey, look what this guy's doing with your power that he usurped from the Silver Surfer. Yeah, and yeah. while that could be interesting, because, you know, you could envision, say, Galactus coming down and saying, you know, uh, taking it from Doom and maybe disappearing him, and but also saying... 
well, Silver Surfer, if you can't be trusted with the power cosmic, then you don't get it anymore and you're stuck mm-hmm. on Earth basically a human, you know, which would have presented some neat stories. But the po- my, my point is, is that um, I like that, you know, it's a plan that Reed has concocted and, you know, the agency is in their hands, but it all gets like really, really rushed through on the last mm-hmm. page, or, yeah. you know, um, and Brian, you did a really good job of, of explaining it earlier, mm-hmm. but there's just a little bit of the air coming out of the balloon. Like uh, it's, it's a little anticlimactic because it, it you know, they're in such a rush suddenly to wrap up by the end of the 21st page. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think we've, uh, we've done a pretty good job of covering these issues. So, um, I'm going to try to make my case for why they should be included in the canon. Um, and I think I got a pretty strong case for this one. First of all, it's most obviously it's a fantastic four story against their arch nemesis. So that, puts it hopefully in contention right there. They're clearly the underdogs from the very start of the issue. Um, so there's there's very high stakes um, right from the very beginning. Um, it's a four-issue story uh, at a time when Marvel really did not publish a lot of those. So the fact that they gave this much real estate to it, um, I think, uh, is indicative of how special it is. Um, it, it resolves the Inhumans and the Great Refuge storyline, which is more of a mercy killing at this point. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. at least it, it ties that off. Um, yeah. uh, and it, you know, it, it's a foundational story for how cosmic power works in the Marvel universe. And this is not the first, or uh, this is not the last time that you know Doom winds up stealing cosmic power. Like he he does it to the Beyonder. Does it like, in Burns Run with Terex? Does it yep. to Galactus not too long <laughs> ago? Uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know it, I I thought it had a very good twist ending. Like I I had read this before, but I had remembered the issue ending with like, oh yeah, Reed whips up a gadget and the gadget sucks the cosmic power out of this uh, out of Dr. Doom and, and that's how they win. And I forget that it's basically a red herring and it's to trick Doom into going into space. And I, I think that twist works really well. I think it actually is a stronger ending than the Galactus, um, the coming of Galactus storyline where it's like, you know, Johnny basically flies off to deep space and comes back with a deus ex machina. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the get out of jail free card. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and, Finally, it's like this is, you know, Lee and Kirby and Joe Sinnott at the peak of their powers um, doing comics. And it's tempting to try to put every single issue they ever worked on together into the canon. But I think this is definitely um, four issues that hold up pretty well. I would add Black Bolt revealing his power, his true Mm. power. That's like a pretty big deal uh, for the Inhumans and how they run through the rest of that scene that you mentioned with him shielding. Maximus is a really, no pun intended, really human moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm never going to complain about getting to see uh, Senate inking Kirby on the Fantastic Four. Right. And uh, just as a side uh, note, I really love their version of Reed Richards. Um, and I think like um, Dale Eaglesham at the start of Hickman's run did a very similar kind of more muscular uh, Reed Richards and not kind of the, the really thin and... Um, more brainy and less authoritative Reed Richards, mm-hmm. if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. He's a challenger of the unknown. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think that um, y'all don't need to convince us because, you know, this is a storyline <laughs> we would do, have done anyway, and I think would feel very comfortable voting yes in the canon. I can't speak for Kevin, but um, we're usually on the same page for things like this. And I want to jump to something that one of y'all said that, like, 
it seemed like like Stan Lee had a special fondness for Spider-Man at this time. And I'm wondering if this is the um, Jack Kirby's favorite thing at this time. And maybe that ref- the difference, you know, that reflects the difference in the books and their mm. personalities and artistic drives. Because this is just visually Kirby at his best and everything is just, you know, super you know energetic and elaborate and even when it doesn't need stuff in it like (laughs) film's workshop is this crazy environment and yeah you don't need to have you know wyatt and johnny and lockjaw go to a planet of crazy dinosaur monsters but it's over here the crazy dinosaur monsters you know it's almost like they showing off you know it's like yeah i'll just put this crazy batwing design here just i'll just ride it with my left hand and toss it out you know it's just a great comic book story obviously but you know heroes being defeated and then mustering the forces and coming back and i imagine that you know just one advantage to having the inhumans part of the story in the middle is that it gets like another issue of kind of pausing the battle to build up to the final thing mm-hmm. so like so the final has a little bit of extra punch you know so yeah. this is like yeah this is no-brainer comics canon inclusion <laughs> as far as i'm concerned all right. Well, there you go. Uh, I think we've got unanimous opinion. Um, so uh, now that means uh, the only thing that we have left to do uh, in this episode is, is talk about our panels of the month. Um, so uh, you know, every episode, um, we uh, just talk about a single panel um, that jumped out at us, uh, that stuck with us after we uh, closed the issue. Um, and uh, I'm going to go first with an issue that we didn't talk about um, on this show, but it was one of the ones that came out this month. Um, and it's Tales to Astonish, number 89. Um, this is on page eight and panel two. So just to give you a little background on this. So the panel is, it's a giant space robot prying open the jaws of a sperm whale to escape from its mouth. Um, so that's that's what's going on. Um, but what it is, is this is a, a two-part Namor story um, that's drawn by Bill Everett, uh, who was the creator of the Submariner uh, in 1939, something like that. Um, and he's, he draws the whole thing in a very golden age style. It's a very conscious throwback to, uh, to early uh, Submariner stories. So Everett had been back with Marvel uh, for only about a year at this point, um, but he had been stuck on Hulk and Doctor Strange, where he's not honestly doing his best work. He was dealing with some pretty severe late-stage alcoholism uh, at this point in his career. Um, but given all that, um, he really, like, this two-part Namor story, he really shines in it. It's really simple. It's not like, you wouldn't think of it as, like, the com- more complex character stories of the 1960s that Marvel put out. It's just a straight-up, like, Atuma uh, is trying to invade Atlantis, and Namor is trying to fight him off. And then, in the middle of all this, a space robot lands in the ocean <laughs> um, and, like, starts messing with Namor. Um and that's all it is. It's it's a very one-dimensional story, but it's really beautifully illustrated. Um, and it's just really nice to see Everett given the chance to kind of come back home to the character he created for a couple issues. So that, I think it was my, I think it was perfect comics. So. Yeah, you sent me that shot and it is uh, just, just the crazy nonsense. It's like when Thor is, you know, smashing a fighter jet with his hammer. It's just like these... Mm-hmm crossing different genres just seeing this space robot come out of the mouth of a whale with a with namor you know swimming up with his little ankle wings um <laughs> it's it's it is just crazy um 
Mine also wasn't one of the ones we dove into. It's uh, Strange Tales number 154, panel five, uh, page five, panel one. Uh, it's the full splash page. It's Steranko uh, doing this Hydra Dreadnought breaking into the helicarrier. Um, basically, it's another giant robot uh, <laughs> that is it's top centered as it rips through the hole of the helicarrier with Nick Fury in the foreground, sort of shielding himself from the resulting explosion. Um, and it's Steranko really hitting a stride um, with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He's done a few like cool things, but then there's a lot of sort of off panels with how the characters are drawn. This one is cons- pretty consistent. Sometimes you get some weird character drawings but um but the the detail um the action is like very kirby uh there's tech in the scene that's very kirby there's this detail that's like johnny severin's work um and then there's sort of ditko's trippy yet graphic layout style so it's like this cool melding of all of these um styles and and this one panel is very indicative of what he's doing there and then my runner-up would be like Gil Kane doing the Hulk, just yeah. seeing the solid figure drawing on Banner, like when Banner is sort of held in stasis by the Stranger. Something about that you just haven't seen something of that quality with the Hulk for a while, yeah. and it seemed uh, just refreshing. But that's but definitely Steranko's stuff was that you know I finished all the books and was like that is what stuck out to me. So that's my panel. There you go. Uh, what about you guys, uh, Kevin, Kurt? Uh, do you uh, have any panels that jumped out at you uh, from this month? Yeah, I forgot to do my homework on picking the <laughs> panels, but um, but but since I talked about it already, I'll say that the um, the one from Fantastic Four sixty with the thing and Doctor Doom colliding and things saying it's clobbering time, of course, is you know yes. just sort of iconic, you know, hero villain fight scene imagery. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it, and they made us wait for that. It, like the thing hasn't said clobber in time at all in, in the entire story up until halfway through the last issue, and then when it happens, like it is on. Yeah. It is <laughs> legit clobber in time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I got to say, I'm pleased because I thought mine was going to be really obvious, and everyone else was going to take it. Um, <laughs> but it is. It's also from issue sixty. It's. The first panel on page three, that classic shot of Doom on the surfboard, yeah. rushing yes. toward the reader. Um, I used to have that as my my um, background kind of like banner on Facebook. Um, like, I really love that image. When I think of this story, that's what I, you know, that's the first thing I think of. Uh, and I kept looking for it. I couldn't remember where in the story it was. And then it's like, oh, it's got to be an issue 60. And then I, you know, and then there it is. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was really exciting for me. Well, Kurt, Kevin, thank you guys so much uh, for joining us for this episode. Uh, this has been an absolute delight. Um, can you uh, tell folks where they can listen to the comics canon? Um, well, we are on, uh, boy, it's part of my spiel and it's not in front of me right now, but, uh, <laughs> on all the places, all the, we say the, um, the hoary hosts of podcasting, all the places where you get your podcasts, like SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, as well as our website, comicscanon.com. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm, um, Kurt underscore Holman and Kevin is at the, the KFM. Kevin, uh, what else should we plug or mention? Oh, um, Apple podcasts too, yes. as well. Mm-hmm. And um, we're we're in the middle of we're wrapping up. Probably by the time this is out, we'll have um, we'll have wrapped up a mini series called the Cosmic Canon, uh, which is just a, a trip through some classic 
uh, outer space superhero stories, including the Kree Scroll War, which we finally got to after ha it having been on our list for years. In um, that one, the Inhumans are on the other side of a barrier around the Great Refuge and have to get <laughs> in the Great Refuge. These guys, they need to hide a key under the mat yeah. or something. Like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. I think no, that's I what's on the top of Black Bolt's uh, mask. <laughs> that's the key. His yeah, it's his he fog. just forgets. Yeah. It's yeah. like yeah. trying to look for your glasses yeah. when they're on your head. Yeah. Yeah. And in October, we're going to do one that's kind of been on the list for a long time, which is um, Mouse by Art Spiegelman, which is, nice. oh, wow. we don't do superhero stuff exclusively. We do, you know, you know, memoir comics and, you know, just kind of non-genre comics and even genre that are crime comics sometimes. But um, uh, Mouse is, you know, about, uh, partly it's about a cartoonist talking to his father about his father's experience in the Holocaust while, you know, seeing Germany rise into fascism. And for some reason, we're going to do that before uh, a month during a presidential campaign. <laughs> yeah, well yeah. I'm sure that's just coincidence. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, really looking forward to that. I saw that you just dropped uh, an episode today about the Great Darkness Saga, mm -hmm. which, you know, I know that's off brand for me to say, but um, it's a, a story that I have fond memories of, but I have not read in years. So um, I'm looking forward to checking out the uh, episode and, and revisiting that. There's something for everybody. Uh, yes. And look down the list. The topics are organized in such a cool way and the essays you know, you're basically producing on each of these subjects are great. So I, I encourage listeners to, to look at the, look through. Well, we appreciate else. that. And we'll have to have y'all on our show sometime to kind of complete the crossover concept. Oh, we'd love it. True. Yes. Yeah. We should tease something up, uh, you know, uh, about what's going to happen to Brian during that episode. <laughs> there, just a Stan Lee yeah. <laughs> method. <laughs> Well, uh, and y'all know where to find us. Uh, you can uh, find us at marvelbythemonth.com. Um, you figured out how to download this podcast, so just keep downloading them wherever you got this one from. Uh, hey, why don't you subscribe? Um, and if you listen to it on Apple platforms, uh, write a nice five-star review so that uh, that improves our discovery. Um, and write one for the Comics Canon, too. Um, whether you've heard them or not, just trust me. Uh, yeah, please join, join the tens of listeners who are uh, flocking to the Comics Canon each, every two weeks. Yeah, Instagram is our, our primary and preferred social channel at Marvel by the Month. Um, but you can find us on Twitter at Marvel BTM and our Facebook group is just getting ridiculous huge now. Um, I don't know exactly what's going on there, but uh, the algorithm has favored us. Um, <laughs> and so you can find us uh, facebook.com slash Marvel by the month. Uh, and we'll be back next week uh, as always with uh, the first episode of 1967. We'll be coming, covering January 1967 uh, with a special guest that we're excited to reveal at that point. And so uh, until then, my name is Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay inside and read comics. Music.